Good morning. If you want to make your way back into the auditorium, those who are not here. Good to hear all the fellowship happening. Um, just so the record shows, I am not superstitious, but if I were, on my walk into work to, or work, yeah, on my work walk into church this morning, I turn a corner and there's this. It looks severe accident. Uh, the person I asked said everybody's okay, and there's other people that are taking care of, so I didn't hang around. But uh, I thought, wow, that's a sign. <laughs> uh, nice, beautiful morning, and see a lot of carnage. But. Um, uh, out of confession, uh, you are looking at an unstable man. The Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Uh, at 8 o'clock this morning, I was changing my notes. But we're going to go back to the original. So, <laughs> um, so with that, just spoiler alert, the point of the today's sermon is it's God's plan. It's His provision is our response. Uh, but I say also to also remember Pastor Gibson when you're um, in your week when he's preparing because it's, it's a weight, um, plus he shepherds us all. Um, so just keep him in my, uh, prayer. He is um, out with his son today, so pray that he has a good Father-Son day. Um, way back in 92, Doug Horley wrote a children's action song. Some of you may remember the words. They go, We want to see Jesus lifted high, a banner that flies across this land, that all men might see the truth and know he is the way to heaven. The simplistic wording of this song sums up what John is trying to present in his book based on his account um, and confession in John 20, 31, where he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John wrote to convince his readers of Jesus' true identity as the incarnate God-man, whose divine and human natures were perfectly united into one person who was the prophesied Christ, Messiah, the, Son of God, the Savior of the world. There was also a second part uh, in the second half of that verse, that says, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wants us to believe, but he's after more than just an a, a, a intellectual belief. He wants us to move from a belief of Jesus to a belief in Jesus. Um, or as G. Campbell Morgan says, belief as volitional, or of the will, surrender to the thing of which the mind is convinced. So a belief that is volitional surrender to the thing of which the mind is convinced. So that's Paul's purpose, or John's purpose as he writes. So we're going to be in John 6. It's page 520 in the, um, 520 in the pew or the chair Bible if you need that. We'll be reading John 6, verse, starting verse 22. And reading until 57, or the Lord comes back, whichever comes first. 
John 6.22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had entered, eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread from heavens to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is, this not, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he know, or how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world, for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us this flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds my flesh 
feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As a living father sent me and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. These are the words of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Almighty God, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, sovereign over all things, we stand before you only through the work of your son Jesus so that we can call you Abba, Father. We ask that your spirit open our eyes this morning and convince our minds through your word. May it keep us from walking in the counsel of the wicked. May we not stand in the way of sinners or find ourselves sitting in seats of scoffers. May we delight in your law. May we meditate on it day and night. May we be the trees planted by streams of water that bring forth fruit in season. May we prosper in all we do. Keep us from envying the wicked who are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Remind us that they will not stand in judgment. They have no defense. There is no refuge for them. They will not be in the congregation of the righteous. For you know the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Spirit, show us Jesus. Open our ears. Fill our minds. Prepare the soil of our hearts. Take my five loaves and two fish and bless it that those the Father has given to Jesus will believe for the glory of the Father. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a man by the name of Marcus Garvey. I have no idea who he is, but he has a quote out on the interwebs. A people without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. So this morning, uh, I just want to kind of review our history, why we're at John 6 when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. What has is, what is led up to this point? In the beginning, once upon a time, God created. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat from any of the tree in the garden? But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, the man and his wife hid. As God pronounces consequences for our disobedience, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Revelation gives us another viewpoint of this enmity. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. 
She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Back to Genesis. Therefore the Lord drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In the garden was life. Life defined as being in right relationship to God. So in the judgment of disobedience, we experienced the death of that relationship, symbolized by the driving out from the garden. However, this also set into motion the plan God had to redeem his chosen people. Throughout the Old Testament, we read and see God work in his plan, raising up a people who would be the lineage for this Messiah to be born through. While simultaneously seeing the opposition attempting to thwart God's plan of salvation. One of God's servants in this great plan was Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham. Of whom, if you heard last week's sermon, the Jews were in a heated conversation with Jesus about. Listen to what God predicts to Abram from Genesis 15:13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And in fulfillment of this prophecy, Moses was chosen and blessed by God to lead the Israelites, the offspring of Abraham, out of slavery. Listen to how Deuteronomy closes in chapter 34, verses 10 and 12. It's page 102 in the gray Bibles, if you want to look up. And there, was, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all the land, and all the mighty power and all great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel." With that in mind, uh, look back a couple of chapters to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. And this is Moses speaking. To the words, uh, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. And then God speaks in two verses later and says, and the Lord said to me, I'm sorry. Then God, um, I'm out. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So these passages point to the greater Moses, who God the Father will send to his people to bruise the head of the serpent and defeat death, with death, so that his people may have life. And so we find ourselves in John 6. 
Um, how many have ever heard the communication rule known as the 7x7 seven seven rule? Not familiar? Um, it was presented to me, basically the thought is, uh, in marketing, you have to say things seven times before people remember it. Uh, it through a management class I took for work, it was presented this way. If you want to influence change, you need to say the same thing seven times in seven different ways. So I think, I can't help but think, John kind of took the course, uh, because if you heard last week with Gibson, there's seven signs, or seven miracles, and seven, um, seven of the metaphorical statements that Jesus speaks, uh, trying to convince us, again, uh, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, the Son of God, and that by believing, life is in his name. Uh, remember John's purpose again for writing this book is to persuade us to believe who Jesus is. God's provision for our rebellion, and by believing, receive life. In chapters 1 through 5, which we did not read, um, John 6 starts off with two signs. Uh, the first one was the feeding of the 5,000, or as most uh, commentaries say, 15 to 20,000, because 5,000 doesn't include women and children. Um, people with abundance of, and they had abundance of food measuring 12 baskets left over. John records, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving them that they were about to come and take him by force and to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The second sign was a much smaller audience, consisting of his disciples that were with him in the boat when he went out to walk on, uh, meet them in the middle of the lake and calmed the storm for them. Um, John's signs are showing us that Jesus is above the elements of this world. Uh, he has authority over everything. Metaphor is a thing regarding as a representative or symbolic of something else, especially something abstract. The metaphorical statement is found when Jesus says, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Why does Jesus use the symbolism bread of life when responding to the crowd? He is connecting a physical picture to a spiritual reality. Jesus is constantly teaching on the kingdom of God, that he was sent by God, and that his messianic mission is not about bolstering the kingdoms of this world, but to usher in the kingdom of God through what he's going to do in the near future. The crowds and Jewish leaders are always regarding the messianic kingdom as the physical realm we live in. Their motivation was temporary satisfaction instead of trying to understand the spiritual significance of Jesus, his person, and his mission. I see Jesus using the metaphor of bread because especially in that day, uh, bread was the main food for the majority of the people. He's speaking the people's language, if you will. Um, people understood the picture that bread brought sustenance and sustainability. 
He is the sustainer of life and the satisfaction in life. And he is the only place to receive these two elements. Bread connects the abstract with the mind's eye. The symbolism of bread could also be a picture of provision. Jesus is God's provision for his plan of redemption. So when Jesus, cut, uh, Jesus cuts the chase uh, when he uh, answers the crowd, uh, when they ask him, how long you've been here, he kind of ignores their question and goes right into the fact that um, you're not seeking me for, for the signs that I'm showing you. You're seeking me because your bellies are full. Um, so he cuts right to the chase, and you sh- he says, you should be following me because uh, not for the immediate satisfaction of uh, that feeling of satisfac- satisfaction, but because of the eternal consequences. He is revealing to them that the plan of God was to send the Son of God himself to take on human form so that he could take on the judgment that our rebellion required. He is in essence saying this is God's plan and God's provision because this is God's work. The crowd then asks, well, what do we do? What do we need to be doing uh, to do the work of God? And there's, there's kind of a sinful element to that statement um, because we as humans resist the fact that there is some things we cannot do. Um, if you would tweet that statement, watch the fireworks ignite. Um, because we are told there's nothing we can't do. Uh, and without digging too deep into that, but it's, it's, there's this element where we want to be self-sufficient. We don't want to be dependent on some, someone else other than ourselves. So they ask the question, what work should we do to do the work of God? They want to do the work of God. Jesus answered them by saying, the work of God is that you believe in me. But their religious traditions and heritage hinder them from receiving Jesus' words. In fact, they get a bit prideful and try to put Jesus' work below their heritage. Uh, just a way of review, a lot of these, the context in a lot of Jesus' uh, conversations and records is combative. It, it, it's always this, uh, between the Jewish leaders um, and John uses the Jews, the term Jews, a lot of times symbolizing the Jewish leaders, and it does include the crowds, which is uh, not only the Jewish leaders. Um, but for the main, when you're hearing these arguments, specific arguments, it's a Jewish leadership testing him, pushing him. Um, and then the, uh, they revert back to the reference of him feeding the 5,000, which had just taken place the day before. So the crowd's ignorance of who is the great provider seeps out in their example when they respond, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. He, Moses, gave them bread to eat. They thought they were upping Jesus. You only fed 10 to 20,000 people one meal. Our father, Moses, the great prophet, fed us for 40 years. Top that one, Jesus. Jesus promptly sets the record straight in verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from the heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is claiming to be the prophet that Moses 
spoke of back in Deuteronomy 18. Their continued blindness and lack of understanding is displayed by their reaction, so give us this bread always. Again, they immediately want the physical and the material satisfied now. And uh, so they wanted this always. Uh, question I have for us is, how are we short-sighted? Are we looking for a miracle to change our circumstances instead of taking the time to listen and know him, uh, Jesus, through the circumstances, through our trials, through whatever we're going through, through our victories even? They have the bread of life in view, but they are starving from spiritual malnutrition. Again, I ask us, how is our spiritual health? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Uh, just a note for clarity, since we observed communion this morning, Jesus is not referring to communion here. Uh, he is referring to his work on the cross that is coming forward. However, that work at the cross does point back to communion. So, um, for what it's worth, free information there. Um, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Unless we put the bread in our mouth, chew, and swallow, the ingredients don't go into our body. The body can't separate the proteins from the fats and get rid of the waste. Um, and we starve ourselves with the abundance of food within reach. So how do we apply this to today? We can read this account and think to ourselves, how can it be so blind to what Jesus is saying? But we are human, just as they were, and the more things change, the more things stay the same. We are dead in our trespasses and sins until the blood of Christ covers them. God has given us his word to reveal who he is his plan for us, and what our response should be. Are we listening? Are we convinced in our minds to the point of submitting our wills, intellect, our lives, to the ways of God, when he says, come unto me and I will give you rest? Do we believe Jesus is who he says he is, our sacrificial lamb, our substitute for judgment, for our rebellion against our creator, so that when he says, the Father's work is that you believe in him who has sent me, do you believe? Are we feasting on Jesus? Are we eating and drinking his word? We can say we believe something, uh, but look at your checkbook, and it will reveal what you truly believe. I get a report on my phone revealing how much time I actually spend on screen. 
How much time are you feasting on Jesus? Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Is your metaphorical hunger driving you to the right food? Is your spiritual thirst being quenched by the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins? The discourse continues. The crowd grumbles amongst themselves, and many, like the rich young ruler, walk away. So where are you? Jesus asked the twelve, after the crowd had dispersed, do you also want to leave? Taking this whole narrative, um, G. Campbell Morgan writes a piece um, regarding life uh, and this topic, and it was just too good not to just read, so I'm just going to read his words. Uh, Taking the whole narrative, notice again that as the desire of the crowd to make him king and his refusal, there was a sharp contrast between a false conception of messiahship, one who shall provide for the material, and a true concept of messiahship, one who deals first with the spiritual and then with the material. So here again we find a sharp contrast, the quest of the crowd and the mission of the Christ. One, um, sorry. What was the quest of the crowd? Life. What was the quest of the Christ? Life. The crowd wanted life. Christ was there to give them life. Wherein lies the contrast in the interpretation of life. Of course, they wanted life, so they wanted to crown him. Life, they said, comes when we are fed. When the physical is satisfied, when our bellies are full, we are living. Many people think that way today. Some few years ago, I heard an American preacher say things about the parable of the prodigal, which I will repeat here. He asked, why did the prodigal leave home? He wanted life. How did he interpret life? If we may judge by today, he wanted clothes, he wanted shoes and jewelry and plenty to eat and drink. Life interpreted by the material. That is what these people were after. Christ came along saying, I am come that you may have life, the very bread of life, That's that which meets the claimant cry of your human nature, or the urgent urgency of our human nature. Do not work for the meat that perishes. Do not make your life revolve around your belly. Work for the bread that cometh down from heaven, that which reaches the deepest necessity of your life. And now to complete my reference to the American preacher's interpretation of the prodigal, all the things he sought, he found when he got home. His father said, bring the best robe and put it on him. He went to get clothes and lost them, but the father had them. Put shoes on his feet, that is where he went to get. And he came back barefooted, but his father found them. Put a ring on his hand, he wanted jewelry, but he lost his jewels when he was away and found them when he returned. He wanted to have plenty to eat and found starvation. It was his father who said, bring the fatted calf and let us eat. He wanted a good time and found misery. It was the father who said, let us be merry. And so all these things people are trying to get are really in the last analysis in the father's house. And if they, get, if they get them apart from the Father's house, they blast them 
and damn them. They wanted life through bread. He was there to give them life through spiritual sustenance. And as we close by listening to him, as he uttered the supreme first claim, I am the bread of life, from then until now, wherever and whenever humanity has found its hunger satisfied, its thirst quenched, it has been when it has come to Jesus and at no other time and in no other place. The first great sign in the realm of words, I am the bread of life, is a sentence that on the lips of any other than God manifest in flesh would have been supreme folly. In John 4, that was uh, Campbell's words, in John 4, there's a Samaritan woman whose interaction with Jesus was similar, who ended up walking away from Jesus for a different reason. The crowd of Jews walked away grumbling because Jesus spoke hard words in our account today. The Samaritan woman walked away from Jesus because Jesus spoke hard words. The difference was God's work was received by her, and she walked away to bring others back and to hear and feast on the true bread of life. We put our belief in so many things that can fail us. Airplanes, cars, chairs, cheap materials. Thrill seekers put their trust in parachutes, bungee cords, new technologies. Fearful people put their faith in security systems, space from others, cheap, limited materials. Whatever, whether we are trying to cheat death or whether we fear death, the fact is, we are all going to face death. The gospel, or the good news, is that we can know someone who has defeated the power of death. In his work, we don't have to strive to find life. Jesus, the risen sacrificial lamb, covers us, and we can feast on him and his words. God tells us to rest in him. It's his plan, it's his provision, it's his work. Ask him to open your eyes to this belief. And as the worship team comes back up, I'll close with a song from Mercy Me that kind of portrays what putting our faith, the first verse is kind of how we put our faith in Christ, and then it's the rewards of that day we look forward to and some verses from Revelation. I put my hope in you. I lay my life in the palm of your hand. I'm constantly drawn to you, O Lord, in ways I cannot comprehend. It's the Creator calling the created, the Maker beckoning the made, the Bride finding what she's always waited for when we find ourselves that day. In you, where the hungry feast at the table, the blind frozen by colors in view. The lame will dance, will dance, for they are able, and the weary find rest in you. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, 
and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night and day will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Welcome to sit or stand. This is our song of response to the word of the Lord. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace you'll we'll sing turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embrace there the son of god gave his life for us measureless dead was erased. We sing, Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. Jesus, our glory and our prize. We adore you, behold you, our Savior ever true. Oh, Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Turn your eyes to the morning and see Christ the lion awake. What a glorious dawn fear
the first Sunday of the month. We also have fellowship dinner immediately following the service. Please feel free to stay. If you didn't bring any food, I'm sure there's enough. There always is. Keith, thank you for breaking the word to us this morning. I appreciate that. Let's pray together with these closing words. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or think, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, now and forevermore. Amen. You're dismissed. Mm -hmm.